Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the Biden Administration's COVID team and Director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. Dr. Fauci talks of the remarkable science behind the mRNA vaccines, efforts by the U.S. and G7 to distribute a billion vaccines around the world, and the threat of the Delta variant causing surges in the U.K., Germany, in the U.S. FactCheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, checks in, looking at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor for the Biden Administration's COVID-19 team and Director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease at the National Institute of Health, which he has led since 1984. Dr. Fauci has directed research on HIV AIDS, on SARS, Ebola, Zika, and now COVID-19. His team has been researching the science behind the mRNA vaccine for years. Dr. Fauci, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. My Very pleasure. Good to be with you. You know, we're just a few weeks away from July 4th. Uh, President Biden has set a really a great goal of 70% of Americans receiving at least one dose uh, of the vaccine by that date. And it's, I think it's fair to say we're on the 10-yard line, or it seems like we're, we're pretty close. I wonder if you could talk about the collective effort that made this possible. And also, it seems to me, uh, without the mRNA vaccine, what uh, this remarkable and elegant science has put together, we, we may not be uh, where we are today. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, I think certainly with regard to the latter question, Mark, it's true. Uh, the, we have been very fortunate that the investment that has been made in basic and clinical biomedical research, both in the platform technology, namely mRNA among others, as well as the proper configuration of the immunogen the spike protein in its right conformation to be highly immunogenic has led to spectacular success with vaccines in the sense of high, high degree of efficacy in the clinical trial and effectiveness in the real world setting. So that's, you're absolutely correct. If we did not have that successful investment that went back decades, we would not be where we are right now. There's not, that's for sure. With, re with regard to the implementation of the vaccine plan, uh, President Biden has made this a, a very, very high priority, yeah. literally from the very first day and even before he was inaugurated. And it has to do with mobilizing all of our assets to get people uh, the, the convenience of being vaccinated, community vaccine centers, federally qualified health centers, 40,000 pharmacies, no longer needing a computer to sign up, just go in and get vaccinated, right. mobile units to go out, but also creating what's called the community core, which is the core of individuals who will be trusted messengers to get out into the community, a greater degree 
of outreach to the brown and black community. I mean, I myself have probably spent, uh, I mean, dozens and dozens of interviews like this with leaders of the black clergy, the black community, the black business community, black sports figures, just to make sure that we get black and Hispanic uh, people there understanding why it's important to get vaccinated. So this success that we're seeing where we have 50% of the adult population already vaccinated, 64% of the adult population receiving at least one dose is not an accident. <laughs> it happened by a lot of effort. Well, you know, Dr. Fauci, I don't know that we as a country or as a people have ever learned so much so fast, put into action so many things and, and pivoted uh, to make it work. Couldn't agree with you more and we couldn't have done it without the science that led up there. So we are very excited about how successful uh, all of our vaccination efforts have been here in the United States. But with a window on the world, it is such a just huge tragedy to see uh, how difficult this is in so many parts of the world. The G7 summit leaders announced a donation of 870 million vaccines to the world's poorest countries. And that came right after uh, the Biden administration donation of 500 million. But tell us about this effort to get vaccines to billions of people around the world who are in greatest need. Is there is there a chance that that will be effective on a global scale the way it's been able to be effective on a national scale? Is there an infrastructure there to take those vaccines and get it into the arms of the people in those countries? Well, Margaret, that's a good question because there are two elements to getting the global response. One is the doses themselves, is to scale up particularly in those companies that have the capability of scaling up by putting a major investment. I think we can do that. I believe that we can get billions and billions of doses in the next year or two. We want to do it as quickly as we possibly can. I think what the what President Biden's first step towards that was really a very, very important move mm -hmm. because as he said when he landed at the Air Force Base in the UK that America is back. And that means back in our leadership role. So when we do something like 500 million doses, the rest of the world follows up because we're not going to be able to do it alone. The United States is not going to be able to take care of the rest of the world alone, but we can be an important leader in doing that. The second part of your the point you're making is a very good one. What about the capacity, the absorptive capacity of these countries? And you know, let's look at the history of what we've done globally with vaccines, with polio, with smallpox, with measles, what we've done with PEPFAR and the Global Fund with drugs mm -hmm. to individuals in developing countries, particularly in Southern Africa, has been very successful. So although one might think, well, many of these poorer countries don't have the capacity, you'd be surprised what they can put together. So I have faith that if we get them the doses, they'll be able to implement the program. You know, uh, you have said to us before that the coronavirus uh, expect mutations out of it. We see the Delta variant is leading to spikes in hospitalizations in the UK and Germany and elsewhere. But the good news, it appears, is that the uh, vaccines have shown some promising protective mm -hmm. uh, 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 nature about, the, about the, at least that variant. I'm trying to connect, at least for our audience, the importance of what we just talked about in terms of this policy to make sure that we're addressing the global pandemic. Because when people aren't vaccinated, 
these variants will continue to mutate. What do you worry about uh, in terms of variants uh, in the population that's uh, unvaccinated around the globe and how that impacts the United States? Well, Mark, a couple of very important issues you bring up. I think the first one that we're fortunate in that the vaccines that we have available right now work quite well against the variants, including the 617. Because we, we know now from the study uh, from the, the Pfizer drug, at least, that it's about 88% effective. So we're, we're in good shape with regard to the vaccines that we have. Getting back to the issue is that a global pandemic requires a global response is really important because as you are correctly saying, if we get the level of infection very low and we get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated in the United States and a large proportion of the rest of the world, particularly in the lower and middle income countries are not vaccinated, that is a surefire way to generate additional new variants. And we may not be so lucky the next time around that the variant that emerges is one that our vaccine is able to cover. It may be that it eludes the protection of the vaccine. So we've been fortunate thus far, but we can't count on being so fortunate forever, which means we've got to get the rest of the world vaccinated. Well, on the, the front of getting everybody vaccinated, we're excited to move down to the uh, 17 and old group and then the 15 year olds. We're vaccinating the 12 and up kids now. Very exciting. and know that uh, the trials are going on uh, to look at approving children as young as five, and that might come as soon as September, uh, I understand. But what, what kind of data are you seeing in terms of uh, safety and efficacy uh, for young children? And, and also number of doses, are we, do we have any reason to think that kids will need boosters, that adults will need boosters? What do you think we'll see? Well, a couple of questions there. First, yeah, with yeah. regard to, to adolescents, the 12 to 15, we have, we have clear-cut data on that, that it works really very well in them. And the original Pfizer study had essentially 100% efficacy in that group of adolescents Amazing. from 12 yeah, to 15. It's really, really good. Thus far, the safety profile looks really quite good. You'll always have a very rare adverse event. Uh, but if you look at the risk benefit of adverse events compared to the benefit of the vaccine, it's overwhelmingly in favor of the vaccine. With regard to boosters, you know, we will likely need a booster shot for durability of protection, not necessarily for the height of protection, because these vaccines work very well. Mm -hmm. But unlike like measles vaccine, which is essentially lifelong protection, we probably are not going to see that. So we're likely after a year or so, we don't know what that's going to mm -hmm. be, Margaret, whether sure. it's going to be a year, a year and a half. So we likely will need a boost whether it's going to be a regular boost or just maybe once every few years, we don't know. We're doing the studies now to determine what the need would be, number one, and what the right boost approach is. Dr. Fauci, I'm wondering if you can give some advice to healthcare organizations like ourselves that are trying to address our staff's concerns uh, and also to deal with the science. Uh, many of us are uh, laying out standards that require people like we do with the influenza shot to be vaccinated, except for religious or medical exemptions. Do you have some advice to healthcare organizations all across America on the standards they should employ? 
Well, you know, that is, as you probably well know, Mark, going to lead to a lot of controversy because the idea about mandating vaccines, it's not going to be done centrally by the federal government. But I'll guarantee you that there are going to be organizations, maybe universities and colleges, maybe airliners, maybe cruise ships, and certainly certain healthcare organizations might in fact mandate that you have to be vaccinated. In fact, there was a recent lawsuit that you know where they tried to prevent a mandate of vaccines and it turns out the lawsuit was lost and people really had to get vaccinated if the institution that you're associated with requires it. I think it's gonna vary greatly from state to state because already some governors are trying to get laws through that says you can't mandate vaccinations. Dr. Fauci, I wonder if I can uh, get you to comment on another uh, area that I know has been of great interest and concern to you, and that's minority uh, representation in research over the years. Uh, Certainly, we've seen the impact on minorities during the COVID uh, pandemic, but we also want to make sure that there's minority participation in the COVID vaccine trials, and I know that that has been somewhat successful. But I um, understand you're seeking a much broader role for communities of color at the NIH with the All of Us Research Program. And we wonder if you could just take a minute uh, to talk about what's going on there and why that's so important. Oh yeah, I mean, the NIH has now made a major commitment, uh, you know, not only for minority representation among us, but for minority health and equity. You know, we have an institute, the National Institute of Minority Health Disparities, which in fact is devoted completely to guaranteeing that we have the wherewithal to make sure that there are uh, disparities that are addressed right up front uh, in a very serious manner. So so the NIH is is taking this really very seriously from the director right down to the people in the trenches. That's great. Talking about public health, you know, we're in the midst of uh, doing uh, mass vaccinations and those are starting to roll down now. We're doing more door to door but talk about the infrastructure that we need to have in place. We have a childhood vaccination distribution program in America. We don't have one for adults. Um, Wondering what your thoughts are about how we uh, learn from this uh, gap that we had in terms of the investments that we need to make in our public health departments and our public health departments. Well, you just hit something that is very, very important. You're absolutely right. The infrastructure for childhood vaccines is infinitely better than any infrastructure. So we have got to integrate the idea of adult vaccines right into the healthcare system. You know, many physicians are doing that right now, are making sure and 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 encouraging their patients, but that's their patients. You've got to have an infrastructure that goes beyond requiring a physician. You've got to be there available to be able to give vaccines for people who don't necessarily have the accessibility of a physician that they could call up. Mm-hmm. So we, it, we have a ways to go, Mark, because we haven't, we haven't um, solved that issue yet of a structure to get vaccines like COVID-19 vaccines and pneumococcus and Zoster and all the mm-hmm. others that we need right. to get adults to get. Mm-hmm. Dr. Fauci, I know we don't have much uh, remaining time with you, but I have to say it's been 
40 years since HIV AIDS was declared a health threat. We've been on that journey with you over these last 40 years uh, since the beginning. And I think that you have predicted a cure is possible within 10 years. And you point to the dramatic scientific collaboration around COVID as proof of what can be accomplished. What, what say you about this? Do you think this is possible 10 years? Well, I, you know, I think there are two issues with regard uh, to uh, HIV AIDS. One is a vaccine. And I think what we've learned from the extraordinary technologies that have allowed us to succeed with COVID-19 vaccines are gonna be readily applicable to HIV. I think HIV vaccine uh, work and attempts is gonna get a, a very positive shot in the arm from the work that's been done with HIV, with, with the COVID-19. It's gonna be a little bit more problematic with the cure. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have spectacularly effective drugs against HIV, one pill a day, and right. you can suppress virus to below detectable level, something we wouldn't have imagined, right. you know, in the beginning of the outbreak. But to actually eradicate it from a person, I think it's doable, but it's not going to be easy. But we'll continue to try. We've been speaking today with Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease at the NIH and the chief medical advisor for the Biden administration's COVID-19 team. You can learn more about his vitally important work by going to niaid.nih.gov or follow him on Twitter at NIAID News. Dr. Fauci, thank you for your lifelong dedication to eradicating infectious disease for your heroic work in the face of this pandemic and for joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Margaret. Good Thank to you. be with Take you. Care. Well, Margaret, we are so fortunate to have Dr. Fauci on again, th third time around the virus. Uh, he joined us back in February 20th of uh, 2020, uh, which is a long time ago. A long time um, ago. And I think one thing that stuck out in my mind is when he reminded us of the number of travelers from China to the United States. This is just before uh, all heck broke loose <laughs> in the United States. But he said there were 20,000 people a day who came. We knew the virus was going to hit all over the country, and it did. Yep. I'd say he was uh, something of a prophet, and, and a prophet who spoke in about as clear a voice as anyone we've ever heard in science who really understands uh, that people need to know, they need to hear the science, it needs to be understandable, uh, and that there's a, there's a course of action uh, to take. And he's really been with us every step of the way throughout this pandemic. And I think one of the things that's remarkable, in addition to all of his work and the science that he brings, what a humanitarian is. He makes the point that he has spent an enormous amount of time with the black and brown populations, uh, leaders in this country, to make sure that every citizen, the citizens that we care so much about here at our community health center are reached by this vaccine and make sure their voices are heard by leaders within their own community. That's right, and, and not just uh, here in the US, but I really appreciated him uh, when we asked about what's happening globally and even if we give 500 million doses from the US and 850 from the G7 summit, can people deliver this vaccine into the arms? And I really appreciated his clear respect yeah. for the developing and under-resourced countries that they have figured out how to deal with measles and smallpox and polio. Um, and that they really, we would be surprised, I think is what he said, we'd be surprised just how much uh, talent there is there for getting done a job that just has to be done. Great. We hope you all join us for another episode of Conversations on Healthcare. Peace and health.
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? When President Joe Biden announced plans to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent by the end of the decade, he provided a few examples, but no detailed plan about how that would be achieved. Nonetheless, speculation by a British tabloid that it could include reducing beef consumption led to a wave of outrage from Republican officials and conservative media. Republican Representative Lauren Boebert tweeted that Biden's plan included, quote, cutting 90 percent of red meat from our diets by 2030. She added, why doesn't Joe stay out of my kitchen? But there is no such plan. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said there was no plan by the administration to reduce beef consumption. On April 22nd, during remarks at the Virtual Leaders Summit on Climate, Biden said some of his infrastructure plan will help the U.S. cut greenhouse gases in half by 2030. That's compared with emissions levels in 2005. Biden talked about infrastructure for clean technology, capping abandoned oil and gas wells, reclaiming abandoned coal mines, stopping methane leaks, and auto workers building electric vehicles. He didn't mention beef or cattle ranching, which does account for some greenhouse gas emissions. But a story in the Daily Mail speculated that Americans might have to cut back on eating red meat by 90% citing a Michigan University study. The study considered diet scenarios that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions, including one in which 90% of beef consumed in the U.S. were replaced with plant-based alternatives. But two of the authors of the study told Yahoo News that they didn't know of any connection between their study and Biden's climate plan. While Republicans and social media users piled on with posts about not being able to eat hardly any burgers, it was all a fake controversy. It is true that livestock operations, particularly cattle farming, contribute a significant amount to greenhouse gas emissions. The UN estimates that globally 14.5% of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions are due to livestock, and cattle represent the majority of that. A 2019 UN climate change report concluded that reducing red meat consumption would lower greenhouse gas emissions and promote better health. But Agriculture Secretary Vilsack said there's no effort to limit beef consumption on the part of the White House or the USDA. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When venture capitalist and Shark Tank co-host Mark Cuban decides to sink a couple of hundred thousands of dollars into your business idea, taking a very small percentage of the company in return, 
you're probably onto something. And that's what happened to Olivier Noel, a medical student and young geneticist at the University of Pennsylvania, when he appeared on the popular ABC show. Through his research and studies, Noel learned that no matter how many resources a clinical study has, it is still extremely difficult to get a large sample of participants to join in studies. There are many barriers to getting a good cross-section of study participants, especially ethnic diversity. So he thought, what if you could simplify the process, eliminate the barriers to research participation, and build up a rich DNA database for future research all at the same time? And he created DNA Simple because he wanted to make it, well, simple. I think the idea came about right around my second year of my PhD. I was uh, actually working out of the Institute of Personalized Medicine in Hershey. And one of the key problems that I saw there is that you know there was the proper infrastructure, there was sequencing ability, there was enough funding for uh, really amazing research projects, but it ended up being a little bit of a chasing game where we couldn't build enough strong enough cohorts at first to be able to uh, do some of the studies we wanted. Some of the patients we were looking for, um, it was taking a very long time for them to come, and every day it would be going down and talking to the genetic counselors and asking, you know, did we have patients with this background today? So how many patients for that particular genetic background that we had this month? And so I ended up going to a genetics conference at Penn, actually, and the keynote speaker there was alluding to a similar problem. And one of the ways they were able to contact patients was through Facebook. And so through Facebook, they were able to connect with a number of patients all the way in India and organize the logistics to be able to get the sample. So the joke at the time at the conference was that, you know, Facebook is the new way of doing genetics. And really that stuck with me and really when the sort of the light bulb went on and I realized that that's something that we could use and leverage. Um, to be able to recruit patients uh, differently. So I wanted to sort of leverage the internet and particularly leverage social media to be able to build a national database where somebody did not need to be a patient or go to the same hospital or be in the same region to be able to participate in this research study and properly provide samples for research. All the participants have to do is to take a simple swab of the inside of the mouth, send it in, and wait to see if your specific DNA is of interest to researchers. Noel says that the company will make their DNA and disease data available to researchers studying specific diseases, offering those researchers a much broader spectrum of study participants. So one of the things we really wanted to do with DNA Simple is to allow for the possibility of doing longitudinal study so that you keep track, um, you, you could continue keeping contact anonymously, obviously, with a particular donor. And so if you're doing a study, for example, um, and you have the ability to collect samples now, collect samples in three months, collect samples in six months, and see how that varies, which is very difficult to do um, if you're going to be in contact with a patient once. And so that was another key factor that we wanted. And the study participants themselves receive an extra something for choosing to participate, a cash stipend for offering up their DNA to research. So we ultimately provide a minimum of $50 every time somebody provides a saliva sample, which they could keep for themselves or donate it to uh, a charity of their choice. DNA Simple has gotten a big boost from the Shark Tank win, and they're scaling up the infrastructure to expand their DNA database to represent as broad a demographic spectrum as possible. DNA Simple, a vetted database linking researchers with a broad array of participants to enhance lab research by eliminating the barriers to finding participants. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health.
Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.